Welcome to the Sum of It All Street Data Podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're exploring the book Street Data, a next generation model for equity, pedagogy, and school transformation by Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we're chatting about Chapter 5, Redefine Success, Street Data and the Pedagogy of Voice. And beginning Part 3, uh, which is what Chapter uh, 5 does, which is an opportunity, as the authors state, to consider how street data can transform student and adult learning. And the authors posit that this is equity work, um, that equity work is first and foremost pedagogical. Um, and they weave together critical pedagogy, project-based learning, authentic performance-based assessments, and culturally responsive education, all of this together to make what they're calling the pedagogy of voice. So I'm super excited to dive in. There's a chapter mm -hmm. um, to this chapter. There's a quote that I thought we might kick off our conversation with, and it says this on page 99. If we don't seize this moment to transform our fundamental approaches to teaching and learning, we will navel gaze and boomerang ourselves into the same played out approaches and results, a pedagogy of compliance for the children at the margins and quote unquote success for the privilege. Mark, any thoughts about this to get us started? Oh, for sure, Audrey. Um, I'm just gonna grab first of all on the phrase, if we don't seize this moment, I love the urgency of that phrase. Um, you know, Audrey, we've discussed a few times about how this post-lockdown environment that we're in, it really, I'm going to steal that boomerang uh, phrase there. It's a boomerang type effect of back to the same played out approaches in education, certainly in mathematics, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think in some ways we've lost uh, some of the games we were making in our classroom environments of mathematics. And it's, it's kind of like we panicked and said, oh no, we need to catch up. And we reverted right back to the control and compliance because like that's sort of like the, I think it's kind of almost like a safety mechanism as the thing that we, the best way we think we know to take care of things. Um, instead of like stopping ourselves and saying, wait a second, that never worked in the past. Um, the real problem is this, this has nothing to do with the voice of the student in terms of how we figure out how to solve this problem. Uh, rather, we think about it like we need to fix our students. They're broken and we need to come in, swoop in and rescue them and fix them. Right, Audrey? Yeah. Yeah. So this is like uh, this feels very oppositional to the way we've been doing things. But I, I feel like it it resonates with me strongly. So pedagogy of voice says, I see you. I believe in you. You are safe to grow and thrive here. I want to hear your voice. And I'm just thinking about those those four sentences, very short statements about what that would feel like as a child and as an adult in a learning situation. I, you know, like it just it feels like a warm hug. It feels like an invitation. Mm -hmm. it, it feels just um, lovely in comparison to I'm broken. I need fixing. Yeah. So, Audrey, I think the real question is, what does the warm math hug look like in math? Right. Mm -hmm. We need a warm math hug. So mm -hmm. so so what would that be about? Uh, you know, like on page 98, uh, I'll, I'll start with this quote here. What was it convincing students to take up a cause or building a classroom environment in which they discovered their own voices and causes? Again, I'm thinking about that in terms of mathematics. Right. Because in many ways, 
we've tried to start shifting the way that we give math prompts to our students. What, you know, what is the content of those prompts? What are they about? Um, I think we've made some strides from getting away from two trains colliding, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know if we're still really at the point where we're tapping into what our students care about. Um, again, another later quote is pushing my thinking on this. It says, my job was to help young people find their voices, not stamp them with mine. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering, even though we've innovated our prompts, are we still stamping our students' voices with our own in terms of what we're asking them to investigate in mathematics? Yeah, it's a great question, Mark, and something I think we should kind of um, unpack a little bit. So, so keeping with the format uh, from our previous episodes in this season, I think we'll dive into a couple of reflection questions to chat about um, again this week in this chapter. Uh, Mark, you have one for us to start off with? Yeah, for sure. Let's let's start with question two uh, in of those reflection questions. And here's what it says. What are your reactions to the idea of measuring student agency in the areas of identity, belonging, mastery, and efficacy? What would this look like in your role in context? Well, Audrey, I'm thinking, you know, particularly with, with our lens, what qualities would we use to describe agency in mathematics? You know, are there specific, specific contextual things to bring out to really get to the core of we, the way we want students to approach mathematics? What do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, they, the authors define agency. They say agency emerges in a learning space where power is distributed, knowledge is democratized, diverse perspectives are welcome, and children are intellectually and emotionally nourished. And you know that reminds me a little bit of the TRUE framework that's um, out of Berkeley, UC Berkeley, the Teaching for Robust Understanding framework. And they have five dimensions of what a powerful math class is, how you, how you essentially create or, or foster a powerful math class. And one of those is uh, the dimension that's called agency, ownership, and identity. And I really appreciate their work, um, but sometimes because they've so closely tied agency and identity, it's it's hard for me to imagine like as a math teacher, how do I foster those things, right? Mm -hmm. So they've created a series of tools which are fantastic. Um, and almost all of them for the agency and identity uh, dimension centers around how we uh, promote talk and discourse in a math class. And I am 100% behind that. I think discourse in a math class is a huge lever mm -hmm. into how we change um, and shift things to be student-centered. But I don't think it's the only thing to attend to. And so I think that's one of the reasons that Peter Loyadal's work in building thinking classrooms has become so popular, is that in pushing students to do the thinking, which is what his research is all around, mm -hmm you actually get these pieces that the authors talk about here in street data. You get distributed power, knowledge is democratized across the classroom and diverse perspectives are welcomed. And so I think there's maybe some more things we have to be thinking about when we're thinking about how do we develop agency in a math class. Oh uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Audrey, I love how you brought back Peter's work, uh, especially that whole idea of the power being distributed. And I'm also thinking about what about for our earliest learners? Um, in this text that we're reading, um, there's somewhat of a secondary feel in some of the examples. So Audrey, I think it might be cool to think about how this might play out for our youngest learners, right? Um, I think in mathematics, we hold an extraordinary amount of control traditionally 
and shortchange the thinking of that our youngest learners are capable of. Um, I believe with our TK learners, our kindergarten learners, and all of our primary learners, we feel like we have to teach them lots of skills before we allow them to apply anything to their world. It's like, you have to learn this before you're ready to apply things into the real world. Um, but I think the thing we forget is they do not arrive at school as empty vessels. And I think when we leverage their thinking, we can positively impact their mathematics identity. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mark. And I appreciate the focus in for even just moments back on those those little ones, because there's so much that we we can do early on to create uh, a trajectory for success for them or a trajectory of trauma. So I appreciate the, the moment thinking about that. You know, the authors talk about identity as your way of being, learning and knowing in the world. This to me feels like the place perhaps we've done the most damage in our math classes. Mm. Um, I feel like when we talk about math in general, we talk about classes where we center a teacher's way of being, learning and knowing. And I think we've gotten to the point where we ask children and students day in and day out, I know at least in the secondary world, to copy down someone else's way of thinking. And we call it notes, right? And then we reward or penalize them based on their ability to regurgitate that same way of learning and knowing that's not theirs. It's someone else's. Um, and, and that's, that's not even getting into the, the ways of being right. Um, and I think that's opening a can of worms there, like the silence that we expect in classes, the straight rows, the seating charts, permission to move, permission to speak. Like there's so much there that in math class, we probably need to unpack and rethink. Oh, wow. That is for sure, Audrey. Just so many of these traditional things that really still uh, we have just still have a firm hold on, on how how mathematics plays out. Um, you know, Audrey, as we've been reading this book, speaking of mathematics, I've been reflecting about how the content area of mathematics is less utilized in reference in any of these conversations we have around education and innovation. You know, I'm thinking about this book and the work that we've done around UDL in pod, in our past podcast season about UDL, um, it seems like the examples from the classroom are less likely to be around mathematics. Um, and I, I'm super thankful for this book because I think, you know, we've been able to make many connections with mathematics teaching and learning just easily from this book. Um, so I just think it's good to remember that when we talk about street data, we are visiting a mathematics class that is student-centered, where the mathematical authority lies with the students. Just starting that with our sort of agreement, like our foundation, right? Yeah, I think it's important. So they get to mastery is another component here to think about. And this is one of the areas I personally feel like I am learning and growing the most, probably because I'm so far behind. But um, I see so many strong ties here between what's presented here in this chapter in street data with the work around universal design for learning. Um, but it's also that aspect that has always been the most challenging to me in UDL because in UDL, they talk about how do you provide choice and how students show that they've mastered or understood something. And to me, that always feels really really weird because assessment and mathematics has always been pretty rigid. And the more I unpack that, the more I'm thinking that we hold on to assessment as looking a certain way in mathematics because we believe that the answer shows mastery instead of the process showing mastery. Like 
if it's all about the answer, then, you know, you hear people still say, well, it's just right or wrong in math. At the end of the day, it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super hyper-focused on answer getting, as opposed to like all of the thinking and reasoning that would show that someone understood something is all the process, right? And that kind of throws off all the kinds of multiple choice assessments we've been doing and all kinds of things that math is typically centered around. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought that word mastery uh, out, Audrey, because I think it's it has so many different interpretations in the mathematics world. And really, God, this whole idea of mastery of process, uh, it, it would be something to really think about. And um, I just think that back to this whole idea of pedagogy, right? Like it's so important to address like the central thesis of this chapter is equity work is first and foremost pedagogical. You mentioned this earlier. Well, we need to make sure that we're clear about the math pedagogy that we are furthering and connecting that to the street data versus a traditional notion Mm -hmm. of teaching and learning mathematics. Um, You know, going back to our earliest learners again, Audrey, um, the, the practice of student interviews with young learners is such a great technique to utilize open-ended questions, story prompts, to find out how students are thinking about mathematics and what is the mathematics that they bring to us without us even teaching them something. Um, There's some wonderful interviews if our listeners are interested in, in listening to some of these interviews. There's something called the DREAM website. It's spelled D R E M E. And um, they have some wonderful videos of of students being interviewed. And it really shows how you can gather data, um, street data, um, that we can gather about the brilliance of our students. So uh, I just think that's a great example of some of the things that we're talking about that really allow students to to build agency as they can share their thinking and have it be valued um, by us as educators. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, one thing I have seen teachers make a concerted effort towards in math classes recently is this idea of belonging. And I've seen it in the notion of social emotional learning lessons and Mm check-ins and time. Um, But one of the, the big differences between, I think what I've seen in practice and what these authors are describing in this chapter is that belonging and SEL is not meant to be a checklist. It's not meant to be something that we do once a week or once at the beginning of the period, or once every unit, and then move on from, that it's every single interaction, right? It's Mm. every single thing that we say. It's all of the design pieces we put together that communicate belonging or don't communicate belonging. And I think there's huge implications here for how we do math intervention, especially intervention classes. And the authors bring this up just just a little bit, you know, just give us a little bit of a taste. And I want so much more to talk about it. Because I think what the authors are sharing and I can see now is that when we when we tag someone for needing intervention, when we say, hey, we're going to separate you and do something different with you, mm-hmm. we are communicating that they are the problem, that the student's the problem. They need fixing, that we need to do something, we need to intervene and get them back with the rest of the group. They're the ones needing remediation. And there's nothing so oppositional to belonging as that right? Like that literally says you do not belong with the rest of the people we are going to separate. And so I think that's, I just, it, it hit me really strong in reading this, that it's, it's the, it's the anti-belonging system is when we say we need to tag you for some special interventions. 
Uh, just, uh, yeah, that's so heavy. And I, I'm, I'm just sitting with what you're saying right now, Audrey. And I, I, again, that happens with our earliest learners. It, it just, this idea of communicating that message to children that are so young, um, making them think that there's something broken about them and that, that getting into their mathematical identity. Um, you know, there's a quote in the chapter, Audrey, that says, you are not achieving on those measures, meaning the student. Therefore, we have to fix you with interventions. By extension, you don't really, you don't really belong to this academic community. You are a problem to be solved, a gap to be filled. Audrey, I just, I think that one quote there, I, I really think that, you know, when we have schools or districts having data conversations, I, I almost picture that quote being like up in the room or at the top of the header of the piece of paper of data. Like, what if that that quote was our guardrail? Anytime we examine data to sort of like caution us and shock us into realizing that we may be about to sort of make some generalizations about our students or decisions about our students that that are really just not the right way to go, right? Yeah. It's, it's so true. We need, we need something to remind us to not have done that path. And part of that is that, you know, deep learning as the author state can only happen in a classroom where a child feels a sense of belonging. Um, they can't do deep learning otherwise. I mean, we've read book after book after bookmark that has said this, mm -hmm. that talks yeah, about what happens in your brain. Like you need to feel belonging in order to be able to learn. Um, the authors quickly mentioned this idea of teachers as well. And so I know I'm going to totally leave this as a cliffhanger here, but I'm still thinking deeply about what does that mean as leaders of professional learning for teachers when we want teachers to learn? Mm. How do we create a sense of belonging for our teachers yeah, so that learning yeah. can happen? Um, I think there's some work to do there. Um, but in light of our time and making sure that we, we don't just <laughs> spend all of it on one question, I have one other question I thought we could chat about today and we'll come back to those cliffhangers perhaps in another episode. Um, question three says, which of these six simple rules for a pedagogy of voice most resonate with you and why? And I'm super curious, Mark, which one you might pick um, out of the chapter, which one resonates with you most and why? You know which one I'm going to pick. <laughs> I have a feeling. So there's one that's called Talk Less, Smile More. And I'm going to try not to sing it, okay? Because yes. um, I'm a huge Hamilton fan. You know that. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I saw that one, boy, that grabbed my attention. And it, it's and I actually love the, the write-up of it. So I'm not just picking it because of my Hamilton um, connections, Audrey. I just want to okay. go on the record to say that. Um, okay. You know, the first thing I thought of as I was reading just the wonderful things they were writing about us thinking about this phrase, talk less, smile more, is that phrase that, you know, these these tired phrases that are handed down from master teacher to student teacher, don't smile until December. Mm -hmm. It's like, what is that? You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so those kinds of things. Uh, but anyway, beyond that, um, you know, when I started thinking about when we start to invite, you know, students to engage in discussions of in, in classrooms, you know, we often do much of the talking and certainly serve as the math authority as we allow students to share. So um, even when we say to ourselves, oh, we're having discussions now, it's, it's so interesting how we still need to talk less. Um, and when I 
when I was going through national board certification and I was, you know, filming my lessons that I thought were so innovative. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, would that guy shut up? It was so amazing <laughs> how I actually thought I had given over more authority to my students, but darn it, I was still doing most of the talking. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand that. And can relate to that on the kind of same end of like shame of like, I can't believe how much I talk. Uh and don't listen. And so, you know, I think knowing our natural, our natural inclination is perhaps to fill up too much space as teachers, as facilitators of learning is a really important thing to acknowledge. Um, and the authors provide a couple of bullet points on page 110 to think about it differently. Um, like one is about thinking about how long we talk before we pause. And they gave a good guideline. Um, Peter Lilliadal's work, says in his research in math class in particular, it needs to be even shorter than the mm. amount of time that they give here. So right. I don't think it can be too short. Um, yeah. Another one's about designing for conversation. Like how are we intentionally thinking about how students have a role in discussion here? And the third part I thought was super interesting was about modeling inquiry and being a person who asks um, you know, questions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Audrey, before we go to the next one, I wanna go back to smile more just for mm. a second. Um, I, I can think of two examples very quickly that I'll give around that. I was on an education panel one time and um, we, we were interviewing uh, educators for a particular um, event. And one of the people came back to me later and said, I was so nervous, but when you were smiling at me, it just made me relax. And I, so I'm thinking about like this, not just with students, but with other colleagues and folks that were in the education space. And I, I just couldn't believe how like they were like just you smiling actually completely set me more at ease. And I just thought that was uh, just really kind of cool. And then one other example is one of the norms that you and I have, Audrey, when we go visit teachers in their classrooms, when we walk in with perhaps other people, and which can be a very nerve wracking thing for teachers, is we encourage people to smile when we visit the classrooms. And ease isn't that something that can also just put... Um, our, our, our colleagues at ease. And so um, I think smile more is just one of those things that we can't, and we can't remind ourselves enough about. Yeah. I think it's a great, it's a great thing to point out and for us to remember post-it notes going on my board for that one. Um, <laughs> the one that I picked, um, cause I knew you were going to pick that one uh, was, <laughs> was questions over answers. And the quote that starts, it says as an educator and an instructional leader, you have the power to model relentless curiosity and the power of inquiry. And, you know, relentless curiosity reminds me of when my two children were little mm. and every statement I made, it felt like at least was met with a why. And we would go back and forth like 10 times this, why mom, this, why mom, like over and over, why? Um, for those who have young children still, there's a bluey episode about this, hilarious, because apparently we all deal with this. Um, but at some point, like it feels annoying, right? It feels like just because, just don't ask me any more whys. But I really feel like that relentless curiosity, like when you situate yourself in the child's viewpoint of like, I really just want to understand and I don't understand yet. And as a toddler, the only word they have is to say why. And hopefully us as adults can not respond to our students by just saying why a thousand times to them. Uh, <laughs> hopefully we have some more communication skills than that. But 
modeling that we really just want to get into the thinking and the understanding. And we want to center someone else's viewpoint. I think it's so powerful. Um, so I really appreciate their, their mentioning this tool of thinking about how we use questions over answers. Oh gosh, you got me thinking so much about curiosity and, and how do we cultivate that or not cultivate that in school? Um, there is a quote on 112 that connects to what we're talking about. And it says, the best learning is driven by students' authentic questions, the kinds of wonderings that keep them up at night and light their cognitive fires. But oh, it's just a beautiful quote, right? Well, so this makes me think of when I have stayed up late to read a book. I, I really love to read books and I can think of many nights where I should have gone to bed and I'm up reading you know, really late. I, I just can't put it down. So Audrey, what's the equivalent to that in mathematics? What kinds of mathematics can keep our students up at night? And I'm not talking about them finishing their homework, by the way. Mm -hmm. That's that's not driven by curiosity and joy. That's that's driven by compliance. So and so if if we want our kids to be feeling like they're still thinking about something mathematically up at, late at night, what conditions in our classrooms would produce that result? Um, so just just something you know really interesting to think about. Um, uh, you know, one other thing, Audrey, is like on the on page 113, um, I just really like the questions that the authors provided for us. You know, um, I won't read them all right now because of time. But folks, if you want to, if you're listening, take a look at the top of 113. I wonder if those questions could be taken as is or are there slight edits we would use to make sure they build student agency in mathematics, you know? Yeah, I think they're great questions. Um, I also know that uh, to reference Peter Lugadell's work one last time, that chapter five is all about the questions we ask in a math classroom. And he has a oh, list right. of 10 things to say, nine of which are questions to think through the same idea of how we move away from being a giver of answers mm -hmm. and instead become someone who asks questions and models inquiry. So um, if you haven't, if you have read that book and want to take a look back, I think there's a really strong connection um, between these two chapters. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, Audrey, we're running out of time, so it's probably good for us to give some final thoughts. Uh, something I'm still wondering about is one of the, the items we didn't get to is one of the simple rules that they provide is one called make learning public. You know how we've been doing a dual uh, piece around thinking about this for students and also adults in professional learning. So I'm wondering how we could do this during like a series of math professional learning sessions. Like how could we make our adult adults be able to how can we create a space for them to make their learning public? Um, I know what we do a lot of is things like gallery walks, right? Um, and I heard some uh, educators recently talking about how students, by the time they get to middle school, they're so over gallery walks. Like they just take the time to walk around with their friend uh, as the teacher does that. And maybe our adults kind of start to do that too, mm -hmm. right? So maybe our adults are over gallery walks too. So what's the authentic version of educators in our math professional learning living out their learning from a math PL? Boy, I just want to keep thinking about that. I definitely think that's something for us to keep thinking about. And I'm super interested to dive into that more. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, for sure, Audrey. Well, folks, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about chapter six, build coherence, focus, holism, and well-being. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SomeMathChat. 
That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on transforming education.